Well, hello, listeners. It is Kara Kandel. We are back with another week of The Learning Curve. I'm here with my um, intrepid co-host, the wonderful uh, Gerard Robinson. And we're here today. It's, um, wow, it, it's a it's a bittersweet day. I don't even know if it's a word. It's a sad day, but at the same time, it's a day, I think, that um, filled me with a lot of hope as the nation officially marked the passing of great civil rights icon, uh, Representative John Lewis. He was a man of countless accomplishments, a, a freedom writer, um, organizer of the March on Washington. He served as the chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he's, you know, beyond a national treasure. He is a person who I, I, I had the opportunity to um, to watch President Obama eulogize him today. And, um, and, and as President Obama said, he's someone who will go down in history as a founding father of what we hope someday will be a fuller, fairer America. So while a very sad day, um, at the same time, listening to um, some of our very great leaders talk about his work, his legacy, and how much he has inspired, um, I think, it, several generations now of, of young people to, to get out and stand up and speak up um, is incredibly inspirational. And Gerard, I know um, you probably have a lot of thoughts on this too. I had a chance to see him speak uh, this summer in Richmond when uh, the city leaders, governor and others were dedicating the renaming of a street uh, that had been named, it was Broad Street for a very long time. They named it after Arthur Ashe. And so he was a keynote speaker it was good to see him there and had a chance to see him at another event, in fact, at the uh, African-American uh, Museum uh, in D.C. You know, he's an HBCU grad. Um, I am as well. So he speaks to the tenacity and spirit of uh, HBCUs and why they were created. And um, I didn't get a chance to watch it today. So enjoy hearing you talk about it. Um, what I do know is that when we look at people like him, there's a lot of inspiration and hope and we're in a season where we could use a lot of that. So glad people could put partisanship aside, uh, even if just for a few hours, uh, to talk about the greatness of who we are by the greatness of the people we birth. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and you know, let's, um, I, I'm gonna, we're gonna get, uh, inject a little bit of happiness here, Gerard. I have to say, my friend, I've, you are my inspiration because I think that you need to get the, the, the pandemic, uh, what am I going to call this? Like the pandemic panelist award. I want to know, Gerard, <laughs> just how many webinars, panels, major Zoom events you have either participated in as a panelist or moderated since, since we've all gone into lockdown. I watched you yesterday on AFC's Black Minds Matter panel. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, fireworks. I loved it. Yourself, Denisha Merriweather, Dr. Steve Perry and others. It was it was really great stuff and also made me think a lot about as I was as I was watching um, John Lewis's funeral today made me think about like the kinds of conversations we continue to have because of folks like him. So but but first first to the question of exactly how many panels <laughs> and, and what did you what have you been thinking about this experience being panelist of the pandemic? I would say it's only 10. Uh, oh, come on. No, I think it's only 10. Only. <laughs> yeah. Now, because we walk in the same circle, 
it may appear within our circles a lot, but no, I would say only 10. Um, I've got, in fact, well, tomorrow will be 11. I'm speaking to a group of students at AEI for their um, annual Summer's Honors Program. And I'm gonna talk about the future of criminal justice reform. But yesterday's event uh, was really good. And, you know, look forward. In fact, you can actually see it's already online. And Denisha interviewed me a couple of weeks ago to talk about the history of black education in the U.S. And so when that goes live, people can watch it as well. You know, it was great. Uh, Senator Ann DePlessis was there. Uh, She was the author uh, of the voucher law or the law that created the voucher program in New Orleans. And she is a corporate executive, former chair of the board of LSU, and someone who's got a very unique personal story, having come from a family of educators, as to why she became a proponent of choice. Uh, Anyone who's listening to us right now, I mean, everyone on there is pro-parental choice. And as I said in my piece, that in no way means we're anti-public school. So uh, it's worth listening to. Um, You know, areas of difference, but uh, that's what keeps things interesting. But I'm glad to know you think so much about me that that I'm ubiquitous. But I would say it's just 10. No, I just think, my friend, and I mean this in all honesty, like you're an awesome moderator. Like you really bring it. And that is a special, special skill that very few people have. So I, I think you deserve I, you know, I, I jest, but only only a little bit. I think you deserve uh, props for for your amazing um, paneling, but especially your moderating skills, which I always enjoy. And, and you're right. I love that. I love that the way you put it, we can be proponents of parental choice without being detractors of, of public schools. It's 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 possible to hold two things in your mind at one time. I like exactly. to tell my kids <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs> All right. But now I'm holding some other things in my mind. And, and the first one has to do with my story of the week. I don't, Gerard, do you know this about me? Did I, have I already made this confession that I started off my career um, making standardized tests? No. Yeah, yeah, it's a deep dark ah, secret. You I guess I just people. shared with the whole community. Well, it was like one of the coolest. I mean, it was a great learning experience. I did this right out of um, my first graduate school experience. You know, I have a master's in anthropology, which a heck of a lot of good that did me. But uh, realized realized that I needed a job soon after, and 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 landed a job. This was right around two thousand one. So. We were just learning what what um, a standardized testing regime could be, and um, but I had the really really interesting experience of working with states to develop standards and to when working with teachers to basically create English language arts assessments because I had been an, an English teacher. Um, mm-hmm. But this goes to my story of the week, which which is all about testing. So this is from Chalkbeat, and it's. Um, it's titled standardized tests were canceled last year, but don't plan on that happening again. And basically what this article is talking about is, you know, this push right now, um, as we all talk about reopening and what school's going to look like, obviously tests were canceled this year, but Jim Blue, um, assistant secretary, U S department of education, friend of yours, a friend of mine, he told folks at the educated educator writers association, um, Summit, uh, not so fast. We are not making decisions yet about what is going to happen to tests next year. And like, yeah, thank you very much because I'm thinking here, you know, we're in the middle of this 
negotiation, it seems, uh, when it comes to um, mainly, you know, district schools around, hey, every we have to make all of these decisions now about what could possibly happen in the fall or happen in the spring. And a lot of states and districts are saying, well, we have to cancel tests. Please don't cancel tests. Whereas those of us who have been at this for a while know that when testing serves the right purpose, it's serving the purpose of shining a light on how well we're doing. And there's a difference between, you know, administering a test and holding folks accountable for those results, et cetera, et cetera. Um, tests, not perfect, but can be a really, really important tool. Um, I'd also like to point out in this article that it quotes uh, a union official, actually the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Mary Najimi, saying that um, that if we focus on tests, we're somehow going to not be able to meet student socioemotional needs. And again, I like to think we can hold two ideas in our head at once, Gerard. I don't see how one cancels out the other because all the good teachers I know, quite frankly, are constantly informally testing. And by that, I mean, they are making judgments about where their students are, where they need to be, and how they are going to get them there. Um, the kind of tests we're talking about are simply going to shine a light, I think, on whether or not districts have been helping students during this time and, and where learning gaps are occurring. And if, if tests go away, um, altogether. I don't know where that leaves us, quite frankly, but I think you might have um, some different insights into this because you've had a bunch of different positions in your lifetime that, that deal with testing. I support testing because I need to, as you just said, identify your developmental needs. We often speak of tests as de defining your deficiencies, and that's a difference. Developmental needs means we identify what happened, let's try to figure out what to do to help you. When you solely focus on deficiencies, you're telling people why they're not good versus what, why they're, how they can become better. It's a slight change in word, you know, some semantics, but I think it's, it's important. So I support tests. Uh, do I think we test uh, students too much? Uh, I actually say no. I think maybe we give too many tests uh, right around the same time. That's for different reasons, but I support it. Uh, there's some people who want to abolish tests. That's just because they don't like tests or and there's some truth to this, that tests are being used as a way to um, uh, overcorrect for some other challenges yeah. going on. So um, I'm going to support tests. I'm not a standardized, a great standardized test taker. I never have. Me neither. <laughs> so, you know, I understand that it doesn't tell you everything about a person, but it at least provides us. Uh, some lanes to walk in the interim. So good for uh, Assistant Secretary Jim Blue, and I'm sure this conversation will continue. And as you talk about tests, uh, one group of people we often forget are students with disabilities. And my uh, article of the week is from Sophie Tatum. That's ABC News Daily. It's posted July 30th. Uh, the title, Majority of Public Schools Have Physical Barriers That Limit Access for People with Disabilities. And they're relying on a recent report published by the Government Accountability Office. And it said nearly two thirds of public schools contain things like inaccessible door handles, steep ramps, playground barriers and others that makes it really hard for students with disabilities to fully participate in the schooling environment. In fact, according to a quote, according to our national survey, an estimated 63% of students in school districts have barriers that may limit access for people with disabilities in a quarter or more of those facilities. 
And additionally, I should say additionally, we estimate that 17% of districts nationwide enrolling, get this, over 16 million students have one or more schools that are not typically attended by students with physical disabilities due to the number of barriers. Wow. Now, in mind that this is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was signed into law by uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, during his signing ceremony, he talked about this law playing a role in advancing the civil rights of people with disabilities, adults and children. ADA covers great ground, but then that later played a role, of course, that help, helps with students, you know, IDEA, IDEA and others. But I mentioned that because we have six million students uh, in our schools who have disabilities, and those students have a number of challenges. Um, just a few days ago, I had a chance to speak with four people on a panel about education and the skills needed for people to thrive in our environment who have disabilities. And we identified that, you know, 66% of African-American students with disability finish high school, 76% for white students, 71% for Hispanic, 79% for Asian students. Now, while we're further along than we were, let's say, uh, at the time, 30 years ago, when the bill was signed into law, you know, there's still a gap because nearly 85% of students in high school without a disability graduate. And those who actually graduate, fewer than 10% of students with disabilities finish college. Our prison system, our jail system, filled with a number of people who have disabilities that weren't met before they arrived uh, to prison or jail. And for a host of reasons, some places are meeting those needs, uh, but some are not. So this is a real issue. Uh, it's only going to be, of course, exacerbated more because we are not in school now. And so exactly. as I said during our conversation uh, with the panelists, what about students with disabilities? I mean, some of them physically need to be in a room and with a person for a host of learning modalities. Technology alone, uh, virtual alone won't happen. So that's my story. Yeah. And it's, and you're right, Jared, we can do so much better. I have to share really quickly that, um, I, listening to you talk made me think about my, my 85 year old mother-in-law who lived with her, um, husband who needed, um, needed assistance to get around for at least a good 40 years of his life. And whenever she would, she lives in Argentina, which is, which is a whole different story. They, they could do a lot better too. <laughs> but here, when she would visit, if she perceived that a building or any place was not properly accessible for her husband, boy, would she find someone to talk to about it. <laughs> everybody needs an advocate like that. But your your point um, too is incredibly uh, well taken about the current moment and how we need to attend to people with diverse needs and be thinking of them and putting their needs front and center. And that doesn't mean, I would say, that if we can't do something for someone, we shouldn't do it for anyone. But it certainly means that we need to think about, um, you know, options. We need to think about the wide array of options that different people need in order to live their best lives and get the education they deserve. So that's a it's a really compelling story this week. One, uh, now, one, one follow-up plug, if you don't mind, for people who want to know more about people with disabilities and how to fight the stigmas and how to advance opportunity, go to respectability.org. Again, that's respectability.org. Um, we're a national nonprofit organization um, that's you know going to focus and to work with employers, entertainment leaders, 
policymakers, educators, and others to fight stigmas and advance opportunities for people with disabilities. I'm on the national board of directors and glad to be a part of uh, the great work we're doing uh, through our great leader, who's also a founder, Jennifer Mizrahi. Fantastic. We'll go there. Okay. Coming up, we're going to switch gears. We're going to, um, uh, we're, we've got a really interesting guest, uh, Davis Obel, and she is a, she's a prolific yeah. author and she's going to talk to us about, um, well, we're going to get a little otherworldly here. She's going to be talking to us about Galileo, Copernicus, and, and, and the many people in their orbits, so to speak. So coming up right after this. And listeners, we are happy to be here today with Davis Sobel, a former New York Times science reporter. She's the author of Longitude, Galileo's Daughter, The Planets, A More Perfect Heaven, and The Sun Stood Still and The Glass Universe. She has co-authored six books, including Is Anyone Out There with astronomer Frank Drake. Galileo's Daughter won the 1999 Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Science and Technology, a 2000 Christopher Award, and was a finalist for the 2000 Pulitzer Prize in Biography, while the paperback edition enjoyed five consecutive weeks as the number one New York Times nonfiction bestseller. Ms. Sobel is a longtime science contributor to Harvard Magazine, Audubon, Discover, Life, Omni, and The New Yorker. She received her Bachelor's of Arts degree from the State University of New York at Binghamton, and she holds an honorary Doctor of Letters degrees from the University of Bath, England and Middlebury College, Vermont, and also honorary Doctor of Science degrees from the University of Bern, Switzerland and Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. David, thank you so much for being with us on The Learning Curve today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. This is um this is it's really exciting to talk to you, especially it's a week where um um some exciting things are happening. Where <laughs> another trip to Mars and um yeah. uh, among among many other things that we're going to talk about in in the world um we talked about earlier in this podcast. But we're I'm happy to escape with you for a little bit, <laughs> especially <laughs> talk about something yeah. something yeah something beyond uh, beyond this this earth. But I, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about you and by finding out how you came to this work. So you were a New York Times science reporter and you've written a number of books about some of the most gifted mathematicians and astronomers in history. What drew you to this work, to the study of these people and to their ideas? And we talk a lot about education on this show. So I'm wondering if you have ideas that you can share with educators specifically about about your work. Yes. Even before I worked for the New York Times, I got specifically interested in astronomy because I went to a public lecture given by Carl Sagan before he was famous. And it was a stunning, thrilling experience. I can still remember what he talked about and how he made me feel that this was the most interesting thing I'd ever heard. And that really pushed me to learn more about astronomy and actually specialize in it in my writing. And in terms of education, what I remember about him specifically, this was when he was teaching at Cornell, was that he always taught the introductory course. He didn't want to leave that to a graduate student or some new person on the faculty because he understood how important it was to get people excited 
at the beginning. <laughs> Especially in astronomy, there's there's a lot of math. And so a yeah, lot of yeah. people who come to it out of a sense of wonder or beauty are quickly turned away by the heavy duty mathematics. But if you have someone truly inspiring, then then you're more motivated to stick with it. And can you explain a little bit about, I mean, it's very difficult work doing what you do. You're researching primary sources in Italian and Latin, <laughs> and then you're having to um, explain some of these complex ideas to the public. Can you, can you talk a little bit uh, about your approach and about what that, what that feels like? Yes. Well, Galileo's daughter is based on a set of letters, about 125 letters that Galileo's daughter wrote to him. And when I first found out about the existence of those letters, I was really shocked because I never thought he'd have children. Um, and then the daughter was a nun. And I had been taught that Galileo was the great enemy of the Catholic Church. So this was a big surprise that he had a daughter, two daughters, in fact, who were nuns. And it made me think that everything I'd learned about him in school was probably wrong. Um, and that he had done the things he had done as a believing Catholic and not as a skeptic. Now, I'm not Catholic myself, but that concept really fascinated me. And in college, when I was a very lost soul and was trying out all sorts of subjects, I had agreed to take Italian with my roommate because she thought it was important for us to wake up at the same time and go to our first class together. <laughs> that was really my big important reason. But um, once in the class, I loved it and I stayed with it. So I had three years of university level Italian. And so when I learned about Galileo's daughter and the fact that these letters existed, my immediate thought was, oh, so that's why I learned Italian. And I um, immediately went back to school to brush up my Italian. And then I spent the first year of the project translating those letters. And I, I was encouraged to do it because I approached a few Galileo experts and said, I'm, I'm thinking of translating the letters and retelling his story through her eyes. What do you think about that? And several people said things like, oh, I've always wanted to do that. And when you read those letters, they'll break your heart. So I, I knew it was good before I, before I really got into the work. And that process really changed me. My, my original concept of the book was to include all of her letters and then tell Galileo's story in the spaces between. But one of the problems with that plan was that the letters cover only a 10-year period. So they are not all the letters she ever wrote him. And you couldn't really fit his whole story into that 10-year period. So my uh, editor and publisher George Gibson at Walker at that time, suggested we get rid of a hundred of the letters, um, which we did. And I told the story with a little less help from her. 
But I gave the whole text of my translations to the Galileo Project website so they could they could be online for students. So for those who don't know much about Galileo's complex life, so you mentioned that here he is, he's a Catholic, but he's also charged with heresy by the Catholic Church. His daughters are nuns. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, why his scientific ideas got him into such hot water with the church? Yes. Galileo got into trouble for expressing the ideas of Copernicus, who was long dead. Um, And the reason he got into trouble was that he spoke about Copernicus in Italian to an educated audience of people who could not go to university, could not learn and read Latin. Copernicus's book is written in Latin, but Galileo wrote in Italian because he really wanted intelligent people to know something about science. And, and he was like Carl Sagan in that way of, of reaching across that divide to, to try to get to people who could just appreciate the, the, the complexity of the universe, be interested in that and, and uplifted by it. And that was considered very dangerous, especially because the Copernicus's idea, which is that the earth is not the center with everything else revolving around it. But the Earth is a planet, like the others, and it revolves around the sun. And that explains a lot of what we observe in the sky. But it's very hard to prove that from an Earth that seems motionless. I mean, we don't really have any indication that it's moving. And the Bible refers in several places to the Earth being fixed on its foundations, not to be moved forever. So what Galileo was saying publicly seemed to be at odds with religious teaching. And that's what got him into trouble. This is Gerard, and yes, it got him into a lot of trouble. Yes. <laughs> We're thinking a lot about good trouble this week, but he got Yes, we are a lot. Yep. <laughs> this is very fascinating to me as someone who studied philosophy, but more importantly, who's interested in people who do different things that seem out of the time and yet revolutionary later on. And so your wonderful books of Galileo's daughter and letters to her father reveal the life of a woman previously hidden from history, Sister Maria Celeste. What is her life story? You know, what was her relationship like with her very famous father? And how did your research discover such an interesting person? I actually found out about her while doing research for my previous book, Longitude, because Galileo was one of the people who tried to solve the longitude problem. And so my introduction to her was in reading a book about Galileo's work on problems involving time and timekeeping. And the book contained a letter from his daughter in which she complained that the clock in her convent was broken. And this was a crisis because the nuns needed the clock to awaken them at a certain hour during the night so they could begin the the office of prayers for the new day. 
And she had been chosen as the person to fix the clock. Hmm. And I just thought that was about the most interesting thing I'd ever heard. And um, I was picturing her. She was about 22. And uh, I thought the clock would be a, a, a great big standing clock. But it turned out it was fairly portable. It was only about two and a half feet high. And so she had a correspondence with that father about what what she was going to do to fix the clock. And she said in the letter, because if I don't get it fixed, these nuns won't let me live. So she was of them and yet apart from them. And she had him to write home to. So that was the hook for me. I was hooked. I was hooked by the letter. The, the letter I first read had been translated into English for the purposes of this book about Galileo's work, which was called The Pulse of Time. And the author was Silvio Bedini, who was, of course, of Italian descent. So he had translated that letter. But I quickly learned that if I wanted to read the rest of the letters, I was going to be reading them in Italian, uh, which, as I said, I was nominally prepared to do with my three years of college-level Italian. So what I learned about her was that she was the oldest of Galileo's three children, uh, all of whom were illegitimate. They all had the same mother, and he never married her. But he definitely considered them his. The, uh, the first one was named for his sister, Virginia. Her, her original name was Virginia Galilei, but she took the name Maria Celeste when she took her vows to become a nun. And uh, so she lived with her mother just a short distance from where he lived in a house where he had student boarders. So this, this was in Padua when he was teaching at the University of Padua. And it was during that period of his life that he turned the telescope into an astronomical instrument. And it's entirely possible that she was with him in the backyard at one point as a child while he was using the telescope. But his discoveries quickly got him hired for a better job in Florence. And he left Padua, but he took the children with him. And um, his, his life soon became complicated because of his troublemaking behavior. And he had the sense that the best way to protect his daughters would be to put them in a convent, uh, even though they were too young. A girl had to be 16 to take her vows. They were 12 and 13 when he put wow. them in the convent. But they were there kind of for safekeeping, which was a fairly common practice because um, they could be educated there. They were in a safe environment. And probably he had the sense that if they were in a, a church-affiliated place, that would also bode well for him. And it was against the law in Florence to have natural sisters in the same convent. But he knew people in high places. He, he knew cardinals. And he finessed that and, and was able to keep the girls together. And the boy, the youngest, 
um, was legitimized in a fiat by the Grand Duke. And so he went on to university and became a lawyer and married and had three children of his own. So her life was very hard in the convent. Uh, they had taken vows of poverty. And so most of her letters involve asking him for something she needed. And then the next letter was a thank you for whatever it was she had asked for. You humanized him in ways we often do not with people who are just, who seem to be bigger than life. Three children, illegitimate. Here's a question. At the time his children were that young, did they have any idea of who he would become? Any inclination that, wow, my dad's really onto something, or is that something that would mature with time? No, they knew because um, by the time Virginia was 10, he was famous all over Europe and, and in China because of his telescope discoveries. So that, that made him immediately a world figure, which is another part of the reason why he got in trouble, because he was so noticeable. He wasn't just anybody talking about these things. He was, he was a big name. Understandable. So that was Maria. Um, let's take another look. So your book, The Glass Universe, tells the story of women who worked at the Harvard College Observatory in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Could you tell our listeners about this story and some of the key lessons you take from your observations of women in science? Well, it was a different sort of convent. Um, it was a time when astronomers realized they could take photographs of the heavens and then the photographs could be turned over to people who would study them during the daytime. And these were photographs on glass plates, which is why I called the book The Glass Universe. And of course, it's also a play on glass ceiling, because a lot of these women, although they became very accomplished, and some of them also became very famous, they could not progress beyond a certain point because they were women and certain avenues just were not open to them. But they made startling discoveries. They came up with a system for classifying the stars. They, uh, one of them, Henrietta Leavitt, came up with an observation that made it possible to ju judge distances in space. And her observation is still used today as the basis of the astronomical distance scale. Uh, another one, Cecilia Payne, uh, became the first person to earn a PhD in astronomy at Harvard. Uh, not the first woman, the first person. And she was the one who figured out that the universe is composed primarily of hydrogen and helium. And everything else is a much smaller fraction. Understandable. Will you grace us with reading from your work? I'd like to read one of the letters from Maria Celeste. So it's, it's only my work in the sense of the translation. But this is a letter she wrote to him right around Christmas time. And I think it really shows the kind of love they held for each other. Most illustrious and beloved Lord Father, as for the citron, 
which you commanded me, sire, to make into candy. I have come up with only this little bit that I send you now, because I'm afraid the fruit was not fresh enough for the confection to reach the state of perfection I would have liked. And indeed, it did not turn out very well after all. Along with this, I am sending you two baked pears for these festive days. But to present you with an even more special gift, I enclose a rose, which as an extraordinary thing in this cold season must be warmly welcomed by you. And all the more so since together with the rose, you will be able to accept the thorns that represent the bitter suffering of our Lord. And also its green leaves, symbolizing the hope that we nurture by virtue of this holy passion, of the reward that awaits us after the brevity and darkness of the winter of the present life, when at last we will enter the clarity and happiness of the eternal spring of heaven, which blessed God grants us by his mercy. And ending here, I give you loving greetings together with Swar Archangela and remind you, sire, that both of us are all eagerness to hear the current state of your health. From San Mateo, the 19th day of December, 1625, most affectionate daughter, Swar Maria Celeste. And then she adds a postscript. I am returning the tablecloth in which you wrapped the lamb you sent. And you, sire, have a pillowcase of ours which we put over the shirts in the basket with the lid. Wow, that's quite beautiful. And 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 even in translation. So what a what a wonderful <laughs> what a wonderful treat for us today. Um David, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been it's been lovely and for our listeners who have not had a chance to read your works, um we highly highly recommend them and they can find out more at Pioneer Institute's website um about you and about your your many books and your wonderful work. So thanks so much for taking this time. Listeners, this has been Davis Sobel. Thank you. What a wonderful guest. And we are back right now with the tweet of the week. I think very appropriately tweet is from the NASA Perseverance Mars rover, which, you know, earlier this week went up on its way. And the tweet was, we're on our way to Mars, me and the 11 million names I carry, one home behind us and a new home ahead. So that 11 million people referring to the 11 million people who submitted their names to NASA's Send Your Names to Mars competition. Um, and it also went up with a plaque honoring healthcare workers amid the pandemic. So pretty cool story, very appropriate for this week. And I don't know about you, Gerard, but I've been feeling lately, I was reading this, I was watching the story thinking, I want to go to Mars. I, I, I want a little getaway. That sounds like an okay place. <laughs> yeah, that really be on a staycation for us. But yes, I, I feel you. <laughs> there you go. I know. And you. we haven't even talked about that. You, my friend, how has that staycation been going? 
going well. Uh, we're going to do a round two in a couple of weeks. So we're making the best of what we can at this point and saving money along the way, which is good. Well, you are, you are living your best pandemic life. Yeah. All right. So Gerard, next week, we're going to have with us Herschel Parker. He is the H. Flesher Brown Professor Emeritus at the University of Delaware and the definitive biographer of Herman Melville. So you can get to talk about Herman Melville. I will be in an undisclosed location next week, Gerard. I am I am taking my own pandemic vacation. No, it's not undisclosed, but I'm going to be somewhere where there's a lot of nature and very few people. (laughs) (laughs) And and also very little Wi-Fi. And that is called the Upper Peninsula of this beautiful, beautiful state of Michigan. It's our own version of a staycation. Um, I think I'm going to be wanting... Um, air conditioning and a shower when we're done. <laughs> but, but well, you deserve it. So enjoy it. So who are you going to leave me with? You next week are going to be with the great Carrie McDonald. Um, so Carrie has co-hosted the show before. She's been a guest. And I think mm-hmm. I know you guys are going to have a lot of fun. Just don't have too much fun without me. I know you can get a little crazy. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, hey, we'll see. I mean, I'll be, I will be listening and be back with you in just a couple of weeks. Okay. <laughs> Until then, take care. Enjoy the rest of your staycation and, uh, you know, like uh, make sure you're celebrating something. <laughs> okay. Will do. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.